0: The clock is ticking and the news is sickening. New York Philharmonic plays the Kim Jong tune. Hitler breaks the peace, Luftwaffe takes off again. And Napoleon's Elba escape, island too boring for emperor. Plus, don't miss our exclusive on the cat who's been secretly running the Swiss government. Those are the headlines. Now, let's get ready to rumble with the ridiculous.
1: News bang. Poking holes in that sodding balloon of lies. the... 2008. In 2008, the New York
0: Philharmonic Orchestra rocked up in North Korea, or the nuclear state, as it was then known. They played to a packed crowd at the aptly named East Pyongyang Grand Theater. Audience members were treated to festive tunes like Ride of the Valkyries and Hit Me Baby One More Time by Britney Spears.
2: The 2,500-strong audience braved risk of execution to hear some sweet violins instead of their usual diet of weapons-grade applause. DPRK's leader, Fat Kim Tangerine, reportedly defrosted enough to enjoy the performance before ordering the soloists beheaded for misspelling his name on their programmes. Then, hooriously, bassoonist Earl Stenchfinger recalls, I've played Cooperstown and I've seen ringers in my life, but nothing had ever been quite as tough as this crowd.
0: It didn't dampen their enthusiasm, though. Encores included Yankee Doodle Goes Gently, prompting rapturous silence from a regime used to woodwinds of another kind. Mmm, 1935. And now back to our sensational Today in History segment, Today we take you back to 1935 when global politics got interestingly upsetting. It was the Treaty of Versailles, signed after World War I, or as we call it now, the Warm-Up Act. This treaty banned Germany from having an air force until they had a good cry and promised they'd be good.
2: Enter Adolf Hitler, the vegetarian menace who thought animal fur looked better on his moustache than on actual animals. He reinstated the Luftwaffe, the Luftwaffe breaching the treaty and starting a café chain that still causes indigestion today.
0: Hungerfest 1939 commenced with salty nibbles all around as Britain and France watched on, stupefied that their stern letters demanding apologies were going unread. Despite sodden knickers, Allied forces raged across Europe like Jäger through an all-you-can-eat bratwurst buffet.
1: 1815.
0: Bastille Day, 1815. The Emperor of Potatoes, the one they call Napoleon, escapes from a Tuscan island called Elba. This man-of-war had been exiled there following his Fontainebleau up, a treaty written on wet paper in some Frenchman's bedsit. This brave little corsair swam two hundred lengths through shark-infested waters to freedom, helped by a friendly stingray he'd trained to carry him part way.
1: News Bang! The news for the blind read by the visually impaired.
0: And we'll have more on that story in a moment, but first the weather with our inimitable weatherman, Shakanaka Giles.
3: Tomorrow, the weather's a bit like Luxor's hot air balloon disaster of 2013, but without the fiery end. Starting in the south, expect a warm day, like a gentle kiss from the sun. A bit of a breeze too, as if the wind's trying to fan the flames of your memories. Moving northwards, it'll be a bit cloudy, much like the skies over Luxor that fateful day. But don't worry, no leaks in this balloon's gas fuel system, just a few scattered showers, like a light drizzle on a history lesson. In the Midlands, it'll be a bit blustery, like the winds that carried that ill-fated balloon. But fear not, dear viewers, this is just Mother Nature's way of reminding us to keep our feet on the ground. Up in Scotland, it'll be a bit chilly, like the cold realisation of what happened in Luxor. But wrap up warm and you'll weather the storm. In summary then, a day of warmth, clouds and blustery winds. A bit like Luxor's hot air balloon disaster, but with a happier ending. And that's all the weather.
1: 1815.
0: Back now to our breaking story. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French emperor and military commander, has made a daring escape from the Italian island of Elba. Exiled after the Treaty of Fontainebleau, Napoleon has returned to the world stage. This unexpected turn of events has left the European powers scrambling to respond. We now turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable for further details.
4: This is it, folks. The moment we've all been waiting for. Napoleon Bonaparte, that little squirt of a man with the Napoleon complex, has just set foot on the Italian island of Elba. But don't be fooled by his size. This man is a force to be reckoned with. He's got the military might of France behind him, and he's not afraid to use it. As I stand here on the shores of Elba, I can feel the tension in the air. The sound of cannons echoes in the distance, and the smell of gunpowder fills the air. Ebia, but Napoleon is no ordinary man. He's got a plan, and he's not afraid to execute it. He's got his sights set on France, and he's not going to let anything stand in his way. The Treaty of Fontainebleau may have sent him into exile, but it didn't break his spirit. He's back, and he's ready to fight. So, as I stand here, on the front lines of this battle, I can't help but feel a sense of awe. This is history in the making, folks. This is the moment that will be remembered for generations to come. So, strap in and hold on tight, because this is going to be a wild ride. Napoleon Bonaparte is back and he's not playing games. Brian Bastable, Newsbang, reporting from the front lines of the Napoleonic Wars.
1: Aetine 1936. In a shocking
0: turn of events, the Imperial Japanese Army attempted a coup in Tokyo in 1936, leading to the tragic demise of politicians including Finance Minister Takahashi Korekiyo, the Imperial Japanese Army, notorious for their war crimes during World War II, were the masterminds behind the February 26 incident in 1936 aimed at eliminating their rivals. Takahashi Korekiyo, a revered politician and finance minister, was among those brutally assassinated during the coup. For a deeper dive into the intricacies of this historical event, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Shit.
5: Good evening, Degenerates. As we delve into the archives of history, let's revisit a time when the world was a different place. A time when men wore hats and ladies wore gloves, and the Imperial Japanese Army was plotting a coup that would change the course of history forever. It was 1936, a year that would go down in infamy. The Imperial Japanese Army, that notorious band of war criminals, hatched a plan to take over Tokyo and purge their rivals. They were like a pack of wolves, circling their prey, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. And strike they did! They stormed the streets, guns blazing, and killed politicians left and right. Among their victims was the finance minister, Takahashi Korekio, a man who dared to stand in their way. They assassinated him in cold blood, leaving a trail of carnage in their wake. This was the February 26 incident. A moment that would forever be etched into the annals of history. It was a bold and daring move by the young IJA officers. A move that would ultimately lead to their downfall. But for now, they reveled in their victory, basking in the glory of their successful coup. Little did they know that their actions would have far-reaching consequences, setting the stage for the horrors of World War II. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that history is a fickle mistress and that the actions of a few can have a profound impact on the world. So let us never forget the lessons of the past, lest we repeat them in the future.
0: Mm, 1935. In a brazen act of disregard for the Treaty of Versailles, Adolf Hitler, the German dictator, has reinstated the Luftwaffe and commenced World War II. The treaty, signed in 1919, concluded World War I and prohibited Germany from maintaining an air force. Hitler, the leader of the Nazi party from 1933 to 1945, orchestrated the Holocaust, a dark chapter in human history marked by unparalleled atrocities. World War II, a devastating global conflict between the Allies and Central Powers, resulted in millions of fatalities and injuries. The world now stands on the precipice of another catastrophic war. Hardeman Pesto, our locum war historian, will provide further insights into this alarming development.
6: Martin, I'm here in Berlin where history is being made. Adolf Hitler has just announced the reinstatement of the Luftwaffe, brazenly violating the Treaty of Versailles. This signals Germany's rearmament and aggression that surely spells war on the horizon. Well, this is an egregious violation that
0: should not be taken lightly. The restrictions on Germany's military were integral
6: to maintaining peace, after the devastation of the Great War. That's right, the so-called war to end all wars, which left millions dead. And now it seems we could be headed for round two. I asked Chancellor Hitler why he would take such a provocative action. He said, to send a message that Germany will bow to no other nation. Strong words. Did you get a chance to speak with any Allied leaders about potential responses? Yes. I talked to Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin of Britain, as he was leaving the Opera House. He said, Oh my, how dreadful, we may have to write a strongly worded letter about this. Surely more than a letter is
0: called for. This violates key provisions of a treaty designed to prevent future global conflict.
6: Well, when I caught up with French Prime Minister Pierre Laval later in a cafe, he was equally alarmed between sips of wine. This violates the treaty most severely. Perhaps we do the sanctions, no? The Allies clearly need to take swift,
0: unified action, before Hitler gains any more momentum. This is exactly what the Treaty of
6: Versailles was created to prevent after the devastation of the Great War. You're absolutely right, Martin. It seems the Allied leaders are caught flat-footed. Meanwhile, Chancellor Hitler is celebratorily screeching the Horst Vessel song with throngs of adoring Germans. It's a dark day for Europe. Dark indeed,
0: Pesto. The flames of militant nationalism have been fanned into a conflagration that could engulf
6: the continent once more. Let's hope wiser heads prevail. Well said. This is Hardeman Pesto reporting from an increasingly militant Berlin. Back to you, Martin.
1: Newsbang. A light in the darkness of disinformation.
0: Polybeat brings us news from 1979 as Amtrak debuts its new Superliner iRail cars and a few unexpected side effects of the speedy new trains on the highways.
7: Well, fellow time travellers, we've landed in the year 1979, and it's all aboard the Superliner. Amtrak, the National Passenger Railroad Company, has just unveiled their sleek new railcars. Say goodbye to those old-fashioned single-level cars, and hello to the new and improved Superliner. These stylish Superliner i-cars, built by Pullman Standard, are based on the Bud high-level vehicles used by the Santa Fe Railway. With a whopping 284 cars, they're replacing the older models on long-distance trains in the Western United States. But wait, there's more. If you're travelling between 1991 and 1996, keep an eye out for the Superliner 2 cars manufactured by Bombardier Transportation. These 195 cars are the creme de la creme of train travel, with all the bells and whistles you could ever want. In other news, we've got a bit of a snag on the A303 near the new Superliner tracks. It seems a herd of wild buffalo has taken a liking to the shiny new trains and is causing a bit of a traffic jam. Motorists are advised to proceed with caution and maybe pack some carrots just in case. Over on the M54 drivers are reporting a mysterious phenomenon. The road seems to be disappearing beneath their wheels. It's all thanks to the new Superliner trains which are so fast they're causing a ripple effect in time. So buckle up, folks. It's going to be a wild ride on the roads and rails of 1979. This is Polly Beep signing off from the past. Stay safe and remember, always look both ways before crossing the space-time continuum. Mm,
1: 1935.
7: Next
0: up, Calamity Prenderville takes us on a journey to 1935, where British innovation laid the groundwork for radar. Calamity's quirky take on science and technology is not to be missed
8: good evening newsbang viewers it's your favorite science and technology presenter calamity prenderville here to bring you a blast from the past today we're time traveling back to 1935 where british innovation was at its finest Imagine this, a radio station in Daventry, England, playing a crucial role in the development of radar. Yes, you heard that right. Radar, a system that uses radio waves to detect and track objects, was born from the heart of Britain. Now, I know what you're thinking. Calamity. What's so funny about that? Well, let me paint you a picture. Imagine a group of British scientists huddled around a radio, trying to detect aircraft. They're probably wearing tweed, sipping tea and munching on scones. Classic British innovation. But wait, there's more. Radar isn't just for detecting aircraft. Oh no, it's also used for tracking ships and weather formations. It's like having a superpower. You can see through clouds, detect storms, and even spot a ship on the horizon. It's like being a weather god or a pirate king. So here's to British innovation and the birth of radar. It's a world-changing technology born from the heart of Britain, and who knows, Maybe one day we'll be using radar to detect UFOs or Bigfoot. The possibilities are endless. This is Calamity Prenderville signing off from Newsbang. Remember, keep your eyes on the skies and your radar on.
1: Newsbang. Cutting through the crap with a sharp silver tongue.
0: Tonight, we're delving into the annals of history with our guide, Sandy O'Shaughnessy. Expect tales of ocean liners, ancient Babylon, and perhaps even a potato ship or two.
9: Ah, and a very good evening to you all. Sandy O'Shaughnessy here, your guide through the winding lanes of history. And tonight, we've got quite the journey ahead of us. So, grab your comfiest slippers, pour yourself a wee dram, and let's dive right in. Ah, <laughs> now imagine it's 1914, and we're in the bustling shipyards of Belfast. The air is thick with the scent of fresh timber and the clanging of hammers. And there she is, the RMS Britannic, the third and largest of the Olympic-class ocean liners being launched into the world. A beauty she was, just like my Auntie Bridget's prize-winning pig, Bessie. But unlike Bessie, the Britannic was built for luxury, not the local livestock show. Huh? Ah. the britannic along with her sister ships the olympic and the ill-fated titanic were the pride and joy of the white star line a british shipping company known for its comfortable passages ah but as we all know the britannic's time in the limelight was tragically cut short when she sank near the greek island of kia in 1916 a bit like my uncle seamus's attempt at a career in stand-up comedy short-lived but memorable ah (laughs) Now, let's take a little leap back in time, all the way to 747 BC. That's right, folks. We're going back to the days of chariots and chaps in togas. In the ancient city of Babylon, King Nabonassar was making quite the name for himself. He brought native rule back after deposing a Chaldean usurper. And his reign marked the start of precise historical record-keeping, a bit like when my granny started keeping a diary of her baking exploits. Ah, (laughs) <laughs> and speaking of records, let's not forget the uh, Alexandrian scholar Ptolemy. He wrote important treatises on astronomy, geography, and astrology. A real renaissance man, that Ptolemy. He'd have fit right in at the local pub quiz, I reckon. <laughs> now, I've just received a letter from young Patrick in Limerick. He writes, Dear Sandy, I've been trying to build a replica of the Britannic out of potatoes. Any tips? Well, Patrick, I'd say start with a good, sturdy variety of spud, and don't forget to hollow them out for buoyancy.
3: <laughs>
9: <laughs> ah, history, isn't it? Uh, isn't it grand? A never-ending tapestry of tales, triumphs, and tragic potato ships. So until next time, keep those letters coming, and remember, see you later, alligator, in a while. Crocodile. Sandy O'Shaughnessy. Signing off.
1: The for
0: in a financial fiasco that would make even Ebenezer Scrooge shudder, Baring's Bank, a venerable London merchant bank, has gone belly up. The culprit? None other than Nick Leeson, a derivatives trader who went rogue in Singapore, racking up losses of a staggering £827 million. Leeson's unauthorised trades in futures contracts, which are essentially bets on the future value of assets, have left Baring's Bank's once-sturdy foundations quaking like a jelly in an earthquake. Now to delve deeper into this tale of financial folly, we turn to our resident business correspondent, Perkins Stornoway.
10: A bright morning. Baring's Bank went bankrupt. Dogger, slight or moderate. It was due to unauthorized trades by a rogue merchant named Nick Leeson. 40s veering southeast. Nick was trading derivatives in Singapore. Biscay, light rain. Bearings was a venerable London merchant bank. Shannon, occasionally rough. It started with commercial loans and investments. Fastnet, good, occasionally poor. But then the times changed. Lundy, Fair. Leeson was a derivatives trader dealing with futures contracts. Rockall, west or northwest, four or five. Futures are standardized agreements to buy or sell assets at a set price in the future. Trafalgar. Fair. Occasionally moderate. Rogue traders like Leeson make unauthorized trades, leading to financial losses. Hebrides. Occasionally rough. Bearings was historically dealing with commercial loans and investments. Chromaty, east or northeast, three or four. Leeson's actions caused the collapse of the bank. German bite, fair. And so today's headline, 40s veering southeast, three or four. Leeson's actions in Singapore brought down a historic London merchant bank. Viking, slight or moderate. With futures contracts, traders hedge against price changes or speculate on them. Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. But the unauthorised trades brought about the end of Baring's Bank. Hebrides, occasionally rough. And so, the once venerable bank was forced to withdraw from international trading. In summary then, the entire bank was due to collapse. Lundy, fair, occasionally moderate. It all started in 1995, and the legacy of Nick Leeson still lives on. Business.
1: 2008.
0: In a remarkable display of cultural diplomacy, the New York Philharmonic Orchestra graced the East Pyongyang Grand Theatre with their melodious presence in the year 2008. This historic performance, the first of its kind since the Korean War, was broadcast on North Korean state television, captivating an audience of 2,500 fortunate souls. To shed more light on this groundbreaking event, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss.
4: Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us.
11: Whoa ho culture vultures. It's Smithsonian Moss. And have I got a throwback for you that's more vintage than your grandma's pearls? The year is 2008, and guess who's strutting into North Korea like they own the place? The New York Philharmonic Orchestra, baby? Now you're like, North Korea and classical music? That's like mixing caviar with ketchup. But hold on to your butts, because this isn't just any old concert. This is the New York Philharmonic laying down some Beethoven beats in the East Pyongyang Grand Theater, and it's being broadcast on North Korean state TV. Can you imagine? The conductor's up there waving his wand like Harry Potter on Red Bull, and the North Koreans are eating it up like it's the last season of Game of Thrones. It's a full house, two thousand five hundred seats packed tighter than Kim Jong-il's jumpsuit, and the music's so powerful, it's practically causing diplomatic earthquakes. But here's the kicker. This isn't just a concert. It's a cultural invasion. The Philharmonic's playing Dvorak, Gershwin, and Wagner. And the North Koreans are like, what is this sorcery? It's like we sent our very own musical Avengers over there. And instead of Hulk smashing, they're symphony smashing. And let's not forget the encore. The American national anthem, baby. I mean, talk about a mic drop. It's like the orchestra turned to Kim Jong-il and said, You've been served, sir. And all he could do was stand there and clap like a seal being thrown a fish. So there you have it, folks. The New York Philharmonic Orchestra didn't just play a concert in 2008. They dropped a cultural bombshell on North Korea, and the reverberations are still being felt today. It's like Woodstock, but with more nukes and less weed. Waho!
1: News bang. Unleashing the Hounds of Truth on the Bullshit Brigade.
0: And now, the final headlines from tomorrow's papers. The Times Patriots net 850 in loyalist roundup post Moore's Creek skirmish The Guardian, Bayern Munich marks founding amidst football frenzy The Independent, Gujarat gripped by grim riots after train tragedy And that's the last from Newsbang tonight Remember, the night is dark and full of turnips. Until tomorrow, keep your friends close and your anemones closer. Good night.
1: Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.